Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the 70-year-old Jacksonville Symphony is one of just four orchestras selected to participate in the Shift Festival at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. The idea is that orchestras go to present a program that reflects what they've been doing in their community. We'll discuss the enduring myth that Ponce de Leon came to Florida in search of the Fountain of Youth. A lot of Florida historians would look back and say, yes, the Fountain of Youth myth is now a part of the fabric of Florida history. And we'll have part two of our three-part series looking at the impact of sea level rise on historic St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's a new work called Bridges by female African-American composer Courtney Bryan, composer-in-residence for the Jacksonville Symphony. The piece is meant to evoke the history of Northeast Florida with different instruments representing different cultural groups. The Jacksonville Symphony has become a part of Florida history, organizing in 1949 and giving their first performance in 1950. So back then the orchestra was not a full-time thing. It was musicians who played together for fun. Money only came in much later. Courtney Lewis is music director of the Jacksonville Symphony. But we can look at a couple of major milestones. Um, 1972 was the commission of uh, celebration by Duke Ellington celebrating 150 years of the city. Um, and we can hear what the orchestra sounded like at that time. And then we move forward to 1997 when Jacoby Symphony Hall was built and for the first time the orchestra really had a concert hall that was its own. And then four years ago we also ratified a major new contract with the musicians that increased the size of the orchestra to 60 full-time musicians, increased the orchestra's salary by 30% and made us competitive when we have vacancies. And that has been a very important part for me as I try to find the best musicians in the world to come and play here in Jacksonville. In its early years, the 70-year-old Jacksonville Symphony performed in various venues, including the George Washington Hotel Auditorium, the Florida Theater, and the Duval County Armory. In 1997, the orchestra found a permanent home at Jacoby Symphony Hall. It was an enormous deal. I mean, this was visionary leadership from people in the city um, who wanted to push for this, and from the music director, uh, Roger Nirenberg, at the time. Being able to rehearse in a building and... Um, develop the character of the sound of the orchestra in the actual space that the concerts will take place is an enormous privilege. Um, and also just being in one building has a very powerful effect on an institution. The fact that our staff are here, that our musicians have their lockers here, and that we're always in this space. It's great, and it's a very, very special concert hall. It's a shoebox, um, and we're lucky to have such excellent sound. A shoebox-style concert hall is rectangular with the stage at one end as opposed to a theater with terraced seating around the stage. 
Music director Courtney Lewis points out that many impressive guest artists have appeared with the Jacksonville Symphony over the decades, including clarinetist Benny Goodman, cellist Mstislav Rostropovich, and violinist Itzhak Perlman. Well, going back into history, of course, some of our board members can remember Pavarotti coming here in the 80s, complete with his pasta maker in the trunk of his car. Um, over the last five years, we've begun to have a gala every year, and for that particular concert, we have a real kind of rock star, classical musician. So last year we had Renee Fleming, we've had Joshua Bell. This year we welcome Susan Graham. Um, those have been very exciting occasions for us. You can feel the orchestra really step their game up when somebody that famous and that great, uh, that great a musician is in front of them. In 1972, jazz composer and performer Duke Ellington wrote a work called Celebration to recognize the 150th anniversary of the founding of Jacksonville. After its premiere, the piece was forgotten and only recently rediscovered. During the preparations for Hurricane Irma, we had to empty the library in case it flooded. And when our librarian, Bart Dunn, was putting everything back into the library, he found this score. And we, we didn't know that it existed. Um, this was commissioned by the Jacksonville Symphony in 1972 to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the city. And it's called Celebration. It's a 10-minute piece that Duke Ellington wrote especially for us. And the Jacksonville Symphony performed it in DC and also in Carnegie Hall in New York, but it hasn't been performed then since. And uh, nobody knew about it, it had been completely forgotten. So when we found that, it was a really exciting kind of um, inspiration to develop a program around musical history that exists in Jacksonville. Duke Ellington attended the premiere of Celebration by the Jacksonville Symphony. Courtney Lewis. Well, Ellington describes it himself, and there's a recording of him at the concert, and he describes Jacksonville as a young girl who's meeting her suitor, and off they go into town and they meet their friends. Um, it's very kind of big band, light classic kind of style. Um, a lot of use of the brass instruments, um, a lot of very 70s sounding violin melodies, you know, sliding all over the place. Um, very much of its time, but absolutely charming, and I think it's going to be really exciting to present it in D.C. Ladies and gentlemen, Duke Ellington. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen, for such a wonderful warm welcome. You're very beautiful, very sweet, very gracious, very generous. And of course, you know, I do love you madly. Uh, I'm very, very grateful for this privilege, I'm indebted to I, my good friend, Maestro Willis Page, our, our gracious host, and the opportunity to be here on the occasion of the birthday party of this beautiful little girl on her 150th birthday.
48 years after that premiere performance, the Jacksonville Symphony will be taking Ellington's celebration to Washington, D.C. as one of just four orchestras selected to participate in the Shift Festival at the Kennedy Center. Courtney Lewis explains that in addition to performance, the Shift program focuses on making orchestras relevant to the communities that they serve. The idea is that orchestras go to present a program that reflects what they've been doing in their community. So there are a couple of different pieces. There's a concert in the Kennedy Center, um, and then there are also a range of education programs that reflect what we've been doing here. So as I said, I was really keen, um, since this is a festival of American orchestras, to play American music. And the most important contribution that America has made to music is jazz. Um, jazz has been an enormous part of uh, music here, but also it's influenced classical music a great deal. Think of the 1920s, of Stravinsky, of the, of the Parisian vibe that there was. Very interested in jazz. So I wanted to create a program that would reflect that. So we start off with a piece by Henri Dutilleux called Metabol, means metamorphosis a piece that's entirely based on a very smoky kind of jazz chorale. There's no way he would have come up with these sounds without having jazz in his ear. Um, then the Copeland Clarinet Concerto, the ultimate homage to jazz in classical music, written for Benny Goodman you know, with string bass and, and very much a jazz atmosphere. Then our new piece by Courtney Bryan, our composer in residence. Um, she came and got to know Jacksonville very well. Um, and went into schools and asked kids to compose music that sounded like their neighborhoods. And over the course of an hour, each kid was able to have a little piece of music that sounded like their neighborhood, the sound of the train or a police whistle, all these kinds of things. Um, and she was actually so inspired by that that she incorporated some of those into her piece, which is called Bridges, after the bridges in Jacksonville that join the various different communities here. She also included a reference to lift every voice and sing. Um, which was written by James Weldon Johnson in 1900. Of course, he's from Jacksonville. So that was a really nice kind of piece of all those stories fitting together. Um, and then after her piece, we play Stravinsky's Symphony in C. Um, Stravinsky's first real masterpiece in symphonic form. He hadn't really written a symphony before, but again, a piece that would be completely unimaginable without the sound of jazz that was in his ear in the 20s. So that concert program, I think, is a really great reflection of personal Jacksonville things with the Ellington and the Courtney Bryan, um, and also this big American story about jazz influencing classical music. We'll also take the Compose Yourself program that Courtney Bryan did in schools here to DC, and she'll replicate that with kids in DC schools. So it's a really kind of organic and exciting reflection of the work that we've been doing here in Jacksonville, and we're very proud to take the whole program to the capital. In 2019, composer Courtney Bryan introduced her new work, Bridges, performed by the Jacksonville Symphony under Courtney Lewis. So Bridges, the title of the piece, so Bridges are seen as something that can separate people and in a city as large as Jacksonville. I've, I've learned from many of you just, um, you know, how the Bridges can do that and also um, I've experienced just by the driving, the distance. But um, Bridges also can bring people together. So the idea is that through music, um, the bridges symbolize um, people coming together.
In addition to preparing this season's performances of Bridges, a work celebrating Jacksonville's diverse cultural heritage, and Celebration, a piece written for the city's 150th anniversary, Courtney Lewis and the Jacksonville Symphony are recognizing the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. 1770, here we are in 2020. Amazing that this music is already so old because it sounds as fresh as the day it was written. We've had a wonderful time this year playing a lot of music. We've, we're closing with the first and ninth symphonies in one concert. Um, we have the Mass in C coming up in a few weeks. We just played the Beethoven Violin Concerto last weekend. Um, it's wonderful to revisit these masterpieces now, and particularly for me at this point with the orchestra. Um, we've had five years of building this orchestra, really you know, hiring a lot of new people, increasing the number of musicians who are full-time employees, um, and to be able to visit so much of Beethoven's music at a kind of critical point in our development is very exciting because really Beethoven epitomizes classical music in a way that no other composer does. And there is something extraordinarily special in the energy that he brings to his orchestral writing. So it's been a real luxury to spend so much time with it this season. Over the past few decades, several major Florida orchestras have ceased operation, but the Jacksonville Symphony's relationship with the community has allowed it to thrive. Well, I think the ultimate challenge to every classical music institution is remaining relevant. How do we relate to our community? And we have worked very hard to make sure that the concerts that we produce represent and look like our community. So there's been a much greater deal of diversity um, in our guest artists. We were delighted to find such a brilliant composer as Courtney Bryan. Um, that has given, a, I think, a signal to the community that we want the orchestra to be for everybody. And I think that's helping us to reach new audiences and to remain relevant in Jacksonville. Next month, the Jacksonville Symphony will join the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra, and the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra at the Shift Festival in Washington, D.C. Courtney Lewis says the Jacksonville Symphony will be representing the entire state. You have to drive for a long time from Jacksonville before you can hear another orchestra. Um, I think it's very important as a big city, as the largest city in Florida that we're, that we're represented. And also, um, we're really looking forward to going to the capital to represent not just Jacksonville, but also the whole state, um, to show the capital that great music happens in Florida. That's a great opportunity for us, and we're looking forward to it. Courtney Lewis is music director of the Jacksonville Symphony. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. It's not too late to register for the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise taking place May 16th through 23rd. There will be fascinating presentations about Florida history on board ship with special tours in San Juan, Grand Turk, and St. Thomas. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. In the year of our Lord, 1513, Easter Sunday, Feast of the Flowers. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, probably the most enduring myth in Florida history is Ponce de Leon's supposed search for the Fountain of Youth. Yeah, that's right, Ben. I think if there's one myth, as you said, that we are addressing, at least when we go to public talks and speak to people who are interested in Florida history, it usually comes back to this fountain of youth and Ponce de Leon coming to Florida seeking some sort of miracle cure to uh, reverse aging back in the 16th century. And it is true that Ponce de Leon did come to Florida in 1513, and he did give the landmass the name that we use today, La Florida. But unfortunately, there is no historical connection to a fountain of youth, or at least Ponce de Leon seeking a fountain of youth. And I would even argue that the reality of the expeditions are far more interesting. Ponce de Leon himself was a seasoned soldier. He had fought in the Iberian campaigns. He was governor of Puerto Rico. And it was actually the fact that he lost his governorship in 1511 that drove him to seek titles and to seek new land and really to enrich himself, which was very common at that time period. This is why these conquistadors, they were exploring these new regions looking for resources. And those resources were gold, silver, but also indigenous slaves to bring back and and use on some of the plantations throughout the Caribbean. This is the reason that Ponce de Leon sailed north from Puerto Rico in 1513 and landed on the eastern coast of Florida in 1513. It was really trying to look for resources. And he came to Florida, was briefly here. They didn't stay. They didn't try to colonized the land. He actually sailed back to Puerto Rico. And then in 1521, they decided to attempt colonization along the southwest coast of Florida. Ponce was struck with an arrow and he died on his way back to Havana. And his tomb is actually in Puerto Rico. You can visit his tomb and that's where he's buried. And even though the the search for the Fountain of Youth is a myth, it's a popular one, even being used to attract tourists to Florida, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. In the 20th century in particular, with the establishment of what still exists today as the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park, started in the 1920s as the Fountain of Youth Park. And the site itself is in St. Augustine, and it's the site of a uh, natural spring. And in prehistoric times, it was the site of an indigenous village. It's now an archaeological park because it turns out in 1565, when Pedro Menendez came back to Florida and established the city of St. Augustine, that was the first landing site for Menendez. It was the indigenous village known as Siloy. So there is some archaeological connection to early historic period and prehistoric period. But it just happened to also be the site of this early 20th century tourism site known as the Fountain of Youth Park. And they would sell these little uh, bottles, vials of spring water and market it as the Fountain of Youth. They also claim that Ponce de Leon landed somewhere near that site. Most historians now would probably argue that where they did land in 1513 was probably somewhere further south. We don't know exactly where, but it's unlikely that it was in St. Augustine near, you know, downtown St. Augustine, especially not the site of a 20th century, you know, tourism park. What we're looking at today, I actually pulled a few artifacts from the archive. We're looking at some postcards that were created around the 1920s, 1930s. Here you can see an actual colorized image of the fountain itself, and it's built out of coquina rock, which was mined from San Anastasia Island, so it was locally mined, and then they built this really elaborate, beautifully done, made-to-look-old fountain where people could go and touch the water and supposedly get this kind of curative anti-aging treatment. (laughs) And we also have these pamphlets. We have one from 1927. This was actually put out by the Fountain of Youth Park, which was a, a private, you know, private park. And they would hand this out to tourists. They would send it around all over the country trying to get people to visit the park and visit St. Augustine. We also have a 1933 pamphlet that was written by Corita Doggett Course. And Course was a 
early Florida historian, and this is close to an actual kind of analytical dissection of the source material, but she still connects Ponce de Leon to this myth of the Fountain of Youth. It really wasn't until 1935 that T. Frederick Davis published an article in the Florida Historical Quarterly. He really started to take this myth into account and peel back the layers and say, okay, where did the first printed connection to this myth really happen? And he found that that actually happened in the 16th century by a Spanish historian by the name of Oviedo, who knew Ponce de Leon. And 10 years after Ponce had actually died, he published this account connecting him to this ill-fated search for the Fountain of Youth. He didn't like Ponce de Leon, so he painted him as this crazy old man that went searching for a way to, to turn back time, which really is the first connection. And then from then on, 100 years later, it was perpetuated by Herrera, who was the chronicler of, of the Ponce de Leon expedition in 1601. And it just kept going and going and going. And then when Flagler came to Florida in the late 19th century, he took this very romantic idea of the Fountain of Youth, ran with it. And then, of course, it was spun into tourism you know, displays and, and the Fountain of Youth Park. Many myths, even though they are disproven, still remain an important part of a particular culture. And that's certainly true with this Fountain of Youth uh, myth in Florida. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with that. And a lot of Florida historians would look back and say, yes, the Fountain of Youth myth is now a part of the fabric of Florida history. It has shaped, at least in the 20th century, how we understand Florida's history. So even though this isn't necessarily correct, or at least there isn't evidence to support any connection between Ponce de Leon in 1513 and this idea of a Fountain of Youth, which I might say, you know, the the idea of a Fountain of Youth, if you will, is present in many different ancient civilizations, you know, going back to ancient Greek times. So this was something that would have been probably in the back of his mind, you know, growing up in Europe, he probably heard of some sort of fountain of youth, but actually connecting that and using that as the basis to fund this expedition is almost certainly, you know, not what happened. However, it's an interesting story. It's still part of our fabric of Florida history. But as Florida historians, we generally like to uh, add that little footnote and say, yes, it's interesting. However, we need to look at the actual history. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the postcards and pamphlets from the Fountain of Youth Park, check out our web extras on myfloridahistory.org. La Florida Easter Sunday This is Florida Frontiers. Climate change is threatening historic sites throughout Florida. Levi Watson is a graduate student in public history at the University of Central Florida and has part two of our series on sea level rise in St. Augustine. Because of its location on Florida's east coast, St. Augustine has always been susceptible to damage from storms and hurricanes. From the earliest Spanish settlement, these storms have influenced the development of the city. While the city has always had to deal with severe weather, Rising seas increase the risk of damage from hurricanes and other types of storms. While in St. Augustine, I stopped by the research library of the St. Augustine Historical Society and sat down with senior research librarian Charles Tingley to learn more about how the city has experienced hurricanes and storms in the past. Storms have been an ever-present danger here. We do have records of them in the Spanish accounts. A good one comes from September the 30th, 1707. Uh, The city was inundated, and most of the houses were destroyed. In fact, St. Augustine's relationship with storms dates back to its very founding. 
We know that St. Augustine was born out of a storm. In 1565, when Pedro Menendez de Aviles arrived off the shores of St. Augustine on August 28th, um, there was a storm brewing. Menendez had a run-in at sea with the French, who had recently established a colony north of St. Augustine, around present-day Jacksonville. Although the French were better supplied, Menendez had a better read on the weather. Say what you will about Menendez, he was a very good sailor. This is the man who was in charge of the ships that took Philip II to England to marry Bloody Mary. Uh, so he had long been a very able and respected seaman. And he had a much better sense of what was brewing in the weather than Jean Rabot and his captains. Because Menendez quickly found an inlet here in St. Augustine. He named St. Augustine after the uh, patron saint whose day he first spotted the land. But the French decided to try to come from the mouth of the St. John's River, 30 miles north of here, uh, and attack the, the new Spanish before they'd have a chance to set up any sort of fortifications or unload their goods. The problem is Menendez unloaded just enough goods very quickly. He sent his flagship, the San Paleo, uh, south to escape the storm, fleeing towards the Caribbean. And the French uh, tried to come and attack, but were swept uh, off course and down the coast of Florida, eventually to be wrecked on the north shore of Cape Canaveral. So you might say that this hurricane was decisive in the Spanish being able to establish a foothold. Although a hurricane helped Menendez establish the colony at St. Augustine, the city has been battered by storms many times since. In 1839, we have our first photographic image of a hurricane. And this was in late August. It's sometimes referred to as the Great Sea Island Hurricane because it actually did much more damage uh, in the Sea Islands of Georgia uh, than it did here. But it flooded the downtown. It brought boats into the streets again. The photograph that we have is from a second story of a building looking at the marketplace and the east end of the plaza in downtown St. Augustine. And the street looks like a lumber yard with all the wood that came off of docks that had been destroyed, washed up uh, into the streets. While storm damage in St. Augustine has been common over the centuries, there is some scientific evidence that indicates global warming may increase the severity of hurricanes. I asked Tingley about the two most recent hurricanes to impact the city, Matthew in 2016 and Irma in 2017. Those storms really were devastating. Uh, the water rose up much higher than normal. Some of these earlier storms, we, we would get like six-foot tidal surges or whatever. I'm not exactly sure what the tidal surge was, but Matthew and Irma coming back to back, two years in a row, made people realize that there are areas in St. Augustine that you probably shouldn't build on. And the houses that are there, if they were so heavily damaged, needed to be either torn down or uh, elevated. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of teardowns. And uh, if the house was wooden, people calling the, the house movers and elevating the house above a reasonable height limit. This segment is the second of a three-part series in which I look at climate change in St. Augustine. In the final segment, I sit down with Jessica Beach, an engineer in St. Augustine's Public Works Department, to talk about how the city is combating rising seas and higher storm surges. 
Levi Watson is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and this week, Levi Watson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.